This morning we're back looking at one of our key scripture passages in our series, Come Grow With Me. God, if you're saved, has planned that you will grow spiritually. And He'll do His part, and He wants us to do our part so that we will grow. And that text that we're looking at is Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, where it says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us, or in you, causing you to work out your salvation. That is, work it out uh, with uh, working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're going to be focusing this morning on those words with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. As an adult, if you were from a somewhat normal, healthy, stable home, you will have an idea of the significance of those words. If you are a child or a teen and you are in a rather healthy, uh, stable home, you also know a little bit about the meaning of those words, fear and trembling. I came out of such a home. My mom was a good disciplinarian. And uh, there were times, though, that she would say to me, I will slap you into the middle of next week. That's how I got old so fast. (laughs) My earlobes are a little longer than some because she would grab them and pull me the direction she wanted me to go. And then I remember those awesome lineups. There are three of us children. There's my sister, three years my senior, my brother, a year and a half older than I. And whenever there would be a crime that took place in our household, like somebody got in the cookie jar or some the refrigerator and they weren't supposed to, we had the lineup. I had a problem. I was the youngest, but I also had this grin I just couldn't keep off my face. It was horrible. My brother and sister, they loved it, though. And we'd stand, she'd go one by one down the line, then she'd see this sheepish-looking grin on my face, and I got the blame for it, often for things I didn't do. But I'll tell you what, sometimes in our household, mom resorted to a higher court. Those were terrifying times for me. You go into your bedroom, and you get in bed, and you stay there until your dad gets home. Those were the longest hours of my life. Pleading with God, and if I could with my mom, please have mercy on me. I will never do this again as I waited hour after hour for that my dad's voice as I heard him come through the door. Believe me, I understand the meaning of fear and trembling. And if you came out of a home like that, you know as well what I'm talking about. Well, this father-son relationship that took place in my home while I was growing through my childhood is a very good illustration of the relationship that God, your Heavenly Father, my Heavenly Father, wants us to have with Him. When He exhorts us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But before we focus on those words, I want to do a quick, and I mean a very quick review here. Last week, and it's in your outline there. We looked at the significance of the context surrounding chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We saw that, among other reasons, one of the reasons that Paul wrote this little letter of Philippians was because two women in that church, they were godly women, they were good women, they were hard-working women for the cause of Christ. They didn't like each other. Think about that. Amazing. They did not like each other. 
And there was problems in the church because of that. And so Paul, not only does he write a letter, he names them. How about that? Yodi and Syntyche. Odorous and soon touchy. I mentioned that last week. Okay. And you can now see the importance that he's just not writing words here. He's saying, look, ladies, this is where you have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because God is at work in you, even using me, to work that out, you know, with, uh, so that you'll do that, as I mentioned, uh, for his good pleasure, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. They were to put that to work, in other words. We saw as well that the Lord Jesus Christ became there, and you're my example of doing this. For he, not that he had any sin in him, but he worked out his salvation, meaning that he was a son, a brother, as the Bible calls it as well in Hebrews, that had to learn and mature through the things which he went through and suffered. And so Paul mentions him in verses 5 through 11 there, talking about his humility. That you think about the life that he had to live here upon the earth and how humble he was and how submissive he was, how obedient he was to do the will of the Father, even when that meant that he would have to go to the cross, bear all of our sin, and then knew that his God would pour his wrath out upon him. He says, he's your example. Focus on him. Let him be an example and your strength as well. But he even went further. He says, my beloved there in verse 12. My beloved. And how precious that is. These people knew that Paul dearly loved them. He knew that life, the Christian life, is difficult. And by the way, it's getting more so for you and me. But he knew that. But they knew he was. they were loved by him. And he had taught them that Jesus Christ and God loved them with an everlasting love. How about that? Never a diminishing love, no matter what situation they found themselves, no matter how terribly they might fail. He still loves them and loves you and me with an everlasting love. And so he encourages them in this context that they have one who loves them. Actually, more, they have Paul. And then thirdly, he says to them in this context, Look, you obeyed in my presence. But you know what? God says, I expect you to obey even in my absence. Even if you didn't have godly brothers and sisters around you, you didn't have pastors and teachers to encourage you, he says, you have somebody even greater. You have God who is at work in you, causing you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, then we went to your part in working out yourself. Oh, i got to say one more thing. He also said, how how important is this? He said, because of the world that's watching you. Because of the world that is watching you. Look at verses 12 and following. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with, what are the words? Fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So it's a common thing to grumble and dispute. He said, wait a minute. Now you've got to apply that work out your salvation with fear and trembling instead of grumbling and disputing. Why? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Boy, is that not graphic of today, where you and I live. Holding fast, literally as well, holding forth the word 
of life. Listen, you and I know that most unsaved people won't darken the doors of a church. God says, that's all right. I will take you and put you down where they are, where they work, where they go to school. I'll put you right in their midst that they can observe you. And who are they supposed to see as they observe you? As you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God at work and causing you to will and work for His good pleasure, they're supposed to see the Lord Jesus Christ. As you and I do that and we pray, God will begin to open doors because everybody out there has serious problems. They want some answers that really work. They want to know there's a God that loves them with an everlasting love. And so they respond. He said, that's why you must, rather than grumble and dispute, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a lost world out there, and I'm going to save some of them, and I'm going to use you to do that if you will do that, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, then we came to the next major movement, your part. Your part in working out your salvation. I mentioned last week, number one, you must understand your salvation if you're to work it out. You've got to understand your salvation. There are three parts the Bible teaches, three tenses if you please. And if you don't understand this, you're really going to have trouble rightly interpreting the Bible as well as understanding your salvation. Sad to say, though, many, many Christians don't understand that the Bible teaches there are three tenses to their salvation. Very quickly, there's the past tense. I have been saved. I have been saved. That's past tense. What does it mean? This is that split second when God justified you. He placed you in Christ and clothed you with Christ's righteousness, thus declaring you the sinner righteous. And from that point on, He viewed you as being guiltless. Wow. How else do you think that you can die and go into the very presence of God? How else do you think that you can have fellowship with Him right now? Because there's always sin in us. Because God declares you guiltless. Because He clothed you with Christ's righteousness. That's the past tense. I have been saved. But then there's the present tense of your salvation. I am being saved. And a word that the Bible uses is the word sanctification. Set apart to God Declared holy by God. That describes the present tense. That word speaks of our being separated unto God. And you're now living a holy life. It speaks of your being matured, perfected, growing in holiness, becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sanctification is continuous. It's going on. Whereas your justification is a one-time act by God. And then the third tense... I will be saved completely. Isn't that great? I will be saved completely. This will take place when you stand face to face with God with a perfect resurrection, resurrected body entirely free from all sin and evil and pollution. So, I have been saved. I am presently being saved. And I will be saved Completely. Now you need to go through your Bible and see where it talks about those three things. It will help you to understand the scriptures and your relationship to God. Here in our text, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, he's talking about the present tense. Not the past tense. He's not saying get saved. He's not saying work out your salvation to get the salvation. No, he says what are you already possess, now work it out. Now work it out. 
And that brings us to the second point under your part in working out your salvation. Number two. Boy, a lot of Christians are messed up in this one. You are commanded to work out your salvation. Beware of the teaching that can sweep a country and a world. Let go and let God. That's not scriptural. You don't let go and then God does it all. That's not what he says here at all. Scripture commands us to do something concerning our salvation. As God is faithfully working in your and my life, we are to live disciplined lives of godliness and holiness. We are to apply all diligence in living our Christian lives. We are called upon to exercise self-control and discipline our bodies so that we will be vessels of honor, sanctified, useful for the Master, prepared for for every good work. Second Timothy chapter 2. And now we come to the third point where our main focus is going to be this morning. The manner in which you are to work out your salvation. Number three in your outline, the manner in which you are to work out your salvation. First, Paul's description and his meaning. Paul's description and his meaning. With fear and trembling. You kind of have an idea because I use that as an illustration of my home. There should be something about having the thrice holy God dwelling in our bodies that causes us to respond to Him in fear and trembling. As I said last week, it seems we have become so accustomed to God's presence, or at least the teaching of His presence in the body or life of every believer, that we have lost the sense of fear and awe and deep reverence that we should have. Somehow I never lost that for my dad until I got older. Knew I was out from under his thumb out of his home. Then I wasn't so concerned about it. God says, well, you better be about me. Amen. Once again, let me remind you that Holy is not the first name of the Spirit, Holy Spirit. No, rather that is a term that is a description of His character and person, and He dwells in your very life if you are a Christian. And God's very description, by the way, of His relationships with us should cause us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For example, He is the omnipotent Creator of both the universe as well as you and me personally. I mean, I look at Psalm 33 or Genesis 1.1. Who is this one that but speaks? And in all wisdom and power and glory, instantly out of nothing creates the whole universe. That's enough to cause us to kneel before him in reverence and awe. And then he is the sovereign king. And we are his subjects. Now, we're not used to that in a democracy, and we have a president and so forth. But in other countries, they understand the king and his power. He is a sovereign king, and we are his subjects. He is the mighty judge over all living moral creatures. In his hands, he holds both life and death of eternal life and reward or eternal punishment, and each one of us must stand before him, and we're going to have to give an account. That's enough to cause us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But he's also our great Redeemer and Savior who had to pay the most incomprehensible price to deliver us from eternal punishment 
in the lake of fire and enable him to cause us to become his children. This so great a salvation that we possess should cause us to work it out with fear and trembling. He is also, though, our heavenly father who does severely discipline his children so as to produce holy living in them. Don't forget that. If I have a reverence and an awe and respect for my physical dad, how much more for my heavenly father who declares that he will discipline me as his child? Well, this one true God necessitates then our deepest humility, reverence, and all. But why is it then... I know you know the answer to this. Why is it then that people deliberately and brazenly rebel and sin against him? Why? Let me share three scriptures. Romans 3.18. Romans 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You think that's where we're living today in this country? Absolutely no fear of God whatsoever. None. It's almost as if he's non-existent. Let me add to that, though. Psalm 36, 1 through 4, where that phrase or statement comes from. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. Transgression's rebellion, by the way. Breaking God's law. It speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him. It flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. He doesn't hate it. He discovers, ah, I take pleasure in my rebellion and my sin against God. And the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. And listen to this. Listen to this. He plans wickedness upon his bed. That means he goes to bed and thinks about the wickedness he's going to do when he gets up in the morning. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. You wonder why we have to preach the law of God? Because people need to know they're condemned and they're guilty and they cannot get saved until they deal with that. And people what? They hate that. Because now you're confronting them with their sin and they think you're holier than them. No, we're not. We're sinners saved by grace. We're people that came to that condition and caused us to fall on our face and said, I'm guilty. I deserve to be be punished. I deserve hell. And if you don't confront them with the law of God, how in the world can they receive the grace of God? I don't get to make up the rules. God is the one who declares them. But when you exclude God from your life and don't believe in his existence or that he's so remote, rem, remotely removed that he's not going to step in and judge, then you just go right on your sin. And that brings me to the next passage, Ecclesiastes 8.11. Why people continue to brazenly rebel against God and continue in sin. Ecclesiastes 8.11 It says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. I mean, where's God? Come on. Okay, I believe in God, but he's out there somewhere. He's not concerning himself about little old me. Listen, you may think that, and the world may think that, but suddenly, and I think this is where we're swiftly heading, you're going to find him step right in the middle of of this creation. It's called the tribulation. 
And all hell is going to break loose at that time. And at that time, there's going to be a panic throughout this world like there's never been before. You ought to come tonight so you can see, are we headed quickly, more than I thought, swiftly, to that very issue here. That's tonight at 6 o'clock. So that brings me to number B in your outline. Cultivating fear and trembling for God from the Old Testament. The Old Testament. We'll go quickly through this. Cultivating fear and trembling for God from the Old Testament. It's good to read the Old Testament. It's good to meet God on the pages of Genesis through Malachi. Let's do that just swiftly. Now, can't get it all. Number one, going out with the Israelites to meet God. That ought to be fun. Let's go with them to meet God. Now, the context is helpful here. You'll remember that he, through Moses, visited Egypt. And boy, did he visit Egypt, just like he's going to do in a far greater way on the whole world very soon. He visits Egypt with those ten plagues that he pours out. And by the time that's through, Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians get them out of here or we're all dead people. And so they apply, that is the Israelites, they apply the blood. I want you to keep that in mind. They apply the blood over the doorposts and lintels and so forth. And God comes through and the firstborn is slain by the Passover angel. And he takes the Israelites out of Egypt, and they go to the Red Sea, and there they're baptized into Moses, if you please, going through the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about that. And now he takes them out, God does, to Mount Sinai to meet him. Now what's going to take place there is this, and this is important. God is going to enter into a conditional covenant relationship with these people. I will be your God, I will bless you, but here's what you must do. And then Moses takes the blood of these animals and he sprinkles it upon the people. Did you know there's only one other place that talks about people being sprinkled with blood? 1 Peter chapter 1, every redeemed person is sprinkled, it says, with the blood of Christ. Why did I bring that up? Because God entered into an unconditional covenant with you. And this ties into this fearing God, working out your salvation with fear and trembling because he entered into a covenant with you as he did, though it was conditional back there with Israel. They obey, he blesses, they disobey, and then he curses them. All right, we're going to go out there now and meet him. Exodus 19 and 20. I'm just going to read some portions here. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words, Ten Commandments, which can't be hung in schools, by the way. Like uh, Eric Barger said, he's gone to several hundred thousand churches, thousands of churches, hardly sees them hung in churches as well. So set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, I love it. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Wow. Great. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. And all the people perceived the thunder and lightning flashes, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. 
For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Over in Deuteronomy talks about that fear and he said he wished that they would have kept that fear, but they did not. Second, in your outline, the first infraction in God's judgment. Whoa, I mean, we just met God. We're God's people. Wonderful. We know the one true God. He leads us and guides us and protects us. And so, he says, set apart for me Aaron and his three sons. And they got these nice garments that were made, show they were the priests, remember? And then they're anointed with the blood and so forth. And now they go to serve God. That meant that they were to represent God to the people and people to the God. And here's what we read, the first infraction of God's judgment. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. Believe me, there was fear that spread throughout the camp of Israel that day. I mean, we belong to God. We're going to serve him. But they didn't take the fire from the brazen altar that spoke of the judgment and God's wrath upon sin. They got it elsewhere. And immediately they go in the presence of God. No second chance. Immediately fire comes out and just consumes them. And they're dead before Moses and Aaron and the rest of the people. Number three. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God's response to secret sin. God's response to secret sins. You know the story very well. They had come crossing the Jordan River, overflowing its banks, and now they're going to go in and take the very first city, Jericho. And God says to them, and all the people were told, the first fruits of this city belong to me. You're to take nothing from it. This is the first city of many more deliver in your hands. This one, you're to honor me with the first fruits. And so they were all told that. Well, they go, and you recall the story, they marched around Jericho several different times, and then they had a great shout, and the walls fell outward, and this impregnable city was there, ready to be conquered, and they went in, and they began to slay their enemies. And as Achan's going around, he sees this garment, and he sees some silver and a bar of gold. He's looking around, all the other people are busy fighting the enemy, and so he says, nobody knows. And he takes it, and he puts it, hides it, and he gets back to his tent, and there he digs a hole, and he buries it. No problem. Nobody saw it. And so they go to take Ai, a little bitty town, if you please. And they said, look, we don't need everybody to go up. And so they get their army together. And the Israelites go up and 36 of them are killed. They lose their lives. And I mean, that threw panic again into the city because all these great giants that were in the land. And now they would hear that this little town had defeated them. And so Joshua and the elders, they go before the Lord and he says, get up off your feet. This is not a time to pray. There's sin in the camp. And even then, Achan would would not acknowledge it. 
And so they had to cast lots, and he and his family are taken. And listen to what Joshua says to him. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, listen to this now, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan tells Joshua about what he took. Joshua then says, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them, he, his wife, his children, all of his livestock with stones, and they burned them with fire. After that, they, they had stoned them with the stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Boy, I'll tell you what. I'm glad I didn't live back then. Man, am I glad I live in the day of grace. But what fear should have come over their lives when God responded to secret sin in this way? Number four, God's revelation to Job. His revelation to Job. You remember we're told the terrible suffering that God allowed Satan to put Job through. And Job longed. He just longed for God to give him an answer as to why. And what God did do was reveal himself to Job by taking him on a little tour and asking him some questions about all that he had created. He never explained to him why he went through it. He didn't even really reveal his character, you know, his redemptive character and his compassion. None of that. All he does is talk to him about what he had created. So he speaks to Job. Listen to these words. Let's talk about grumbling and disputing. Listen to these words. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And he said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Whoa! He doesn't see God. God's in the storm. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Dear ones, may I submit that you and I do that a whole lot? God, we say we need a God of love. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He controls everything. And why am I in the situation I'm in? Why does he allow that? And we begin to impugn him and judge him. That was Job's sin. But what's amazing is Job responds, and all God did was talk to him a little bit about his creation. Not his person, his character. I mean, God's person, character. Just about creation. And Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract. I repent in dust and ashes. This is the most godly man alive at that time. Little meeting with God, and boy, that's boy, I'll tell you what. Talk about fear and trembling. And we move quickly to number five, God's revelation to Isaiah. In fact, the apostle John says that Isaiah actually saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-existent glory, and he spoke of him. And you'll remember who and what Isaiah saw and what his response was. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. 
Seraphim, a high order of angels, stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold, this is heaven now, trembled, shook at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. What's Isaiah's response? Then I said, Woe, woe is me, for I am ruined. That's what happens when you come into the presence of holy God. And God wants us to come into his presence that way. It's wonderful that he loves us with an everlasting love, that he's merciful and compassionate, but boy, he wants us to have a reverence and a respect and awe for him that causes us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is he who is at work in us, causing us to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's revelation to Ezekiel there in number 6 Remember, Ezekiel saw this vision that I can't even describe. I mean, wheels and, and uh, animals. I mean, there was a, uh, on one side was a face of a man, a face of a bull, an ox, a face of a lion, a face of an eagle. And then there were eyes all over the place. I mean, there was the angelic beings and then the, the throne above all that and the sea of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, azure, whatever it was. I mean, he sees God there and he just becomes, falls flat down like a dead man. Daniel had a similar experience. John the Apostle had a similar experience. And that brings us now to cultivating fear and trembling for God from the New Testament. But let me say this. It really is healthy for you and me to read the Old Testament and meet God on the pages of the Scripture there. Very, very healthy. He's the same God. Yes, law revealed Him. And thank God, grace through Jesus Christ was revealed. And now we come to that. Cultivating fear and trembling for God from the New Testament. First of all, number one, Jesus' strong statement about fearing God. Now you're talking about the Son of God in His human form. And His strong statement about fearing this God. Luke 12, 4, if you want to take notes. Luke 12, 4. Jesus said, I say to you, my friends... Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. Don't be afraid of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the fact that they might overrun America and there might be a slaughter. Don't be afraid of that. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And that's exactly the world out there that does not do that. They don't fear him. No fear of God before their eyes. And yet they, gave, they were given this warning by the Son of God who came to reveal the Trinity to us. Provide salvation. Number two, the scriptural commands to fear God. I'm going to give three of them. We've looked at them before, so it'll be very quick here. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Perfecting holiness, how? In the fear of God. Let me say that again. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Philippians two twelve and 13, we already know that. Work out your salvation. Not for it, work it out, what you already have, with what? 
fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you, causing you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Don't throw that work away. And you can do that. I didn't say you could lose your salvation, but you can throw that work away. And number three, 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why? Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Remember I said you were sprinkled with that blood? God declares that happened to us? And we'll see a little bit more of the significance and the weight of this a little bit later on. So that's the scriptural commands. There's others in scripture about fearing God. But let's go on to number three. The fear that accompanies our future appointment at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm a little bit concerned about that for me. I want to go to heaven. I know I'm going to go there because I'm redeemed. I'm the sinner who still sins. That's redeemed. Amen? Oh, I'm, I'm going to say it loud. Amen. Thank you, God. I don't deserve heaven. But you caught open my heart and mind and caused me to embrace Christ and trust Him, Him alone to save me. I mean, I'm fully trusting Him. And therefore, there's a work going on in me. And I say, I'm a little bit concerned about this judgment seat of Christ. I realize I'm not going to be dealing with any sin there, but I'm going to be dealing with loss or gaining of reward. And that concerns me as I stand before the Son of God, the Savior of the world, my Savior. And so 2 Corinthians 5 10. And I want to divorce verse 11, the first part from this. So 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11. For we must all, that's every believer and only believers, only saved people, only justified people, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. By the way, the unsaved are going to appear before the great white throne judgment where they'll receive everlasting damnation. But every believer is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ called the Bema Seat, so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. I don't know. seems to me it ought to instill in you and me a sense of fear, of awe, of respect toward God when I realize this appointment is going to be kept by me. I'm a little concerned about that, and that's good. That's healthy. To live your life for Him instead of for yourself. It's healthy. Thank God that He's working out of salvation, your salvation in you, causing you to will and to work for His good pleasure. But number four, our proper fear of a disciplining Heavenly Father. Our proper fear. And I'm going to have you turn to Hebrews 12. A couple of these scriptures... I want you to turn within your scriptures and your Bible. Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 11. A proper fear of our disciplining Heavenly Father. I started out by talking about how I learned to revere and fear and respect my dad. God says, I want that similar reverence and respect for me. 
Verse 4 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, but by the way, you soon might. I might. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And you know it's possible to do that? To ignore it? To be angry with God, but that's disregarding it lightly? Nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And look at this word. And He scourges. That means He lays on the whip. Every son whom he receives. Has he done that to you? I would imagine so. After all, if you're one of his, he does allow these things and permits them. He uses them. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is or whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Wow. Well, then, Lord, I hate your disciplining, but thank you for it. I need to have that confirmation I'm one of your children. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Boy, isn't that true? Don't tell me this hurts you more than it does me. Yeah. But he disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share his holiness. Isn't that good? God says, I'm going to create in you a holy life, a holy walk. Right response. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Yeah, there ought to be a proper fear of our disciplining Heavenly Father. Number five. One that seems to be lost today. Our fear of committing the sin unto death. Believers, saved people. Our fear of committing the sin unto death. Interesting, God had began a new movement back with Israel. They were sanctified. The blood was sprinkled upon them and a covenant was made. It was a conditional covenant, but it was made. And almost immediately, there's a breaking of that covenant and God's wrath is poured out and Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, are smoked with fire, gone. Now he begins a new movement called the church. It's an unconditional covenant. As I said, all believers are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And almost immediately, there is sin in the camp. And what does God do? Immediately, he strikes them down dead. Talk about trying to instill fear in his people. Here was Ananias and Sapphira. They were redeemed people. They had seen what uh, 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 Barnabas had done. He had sold some land because of the needs there in Jerusalem. There were great needs back then because the Jewish people that were unsaved were boycotting the businesses of those who were saved. And so there, and people had come in and there was, you know, they had, they stayed there because the apostles were there and they wanted to grow and so they needed to have a place to stay and food. And so uh, Barnabas sold this tract of land and gave it all to the people. Well, they heard about that. Whoa, this is great. Man, oh, Barney, he's a great guy. Look, we'll sell some land. And they could. And they didn't have to give a bit of it to the Lord. Not a cent. But they chose to give a portion and then to say, we gave it all. What'd they do? They lied 
And it was an act of hypocrisy. And what did God do? Ananias comes in and Peter's made cognizant of this by the Holy Spirit. He says, did you sell it for such and such? Yeah, we did. Did you give this much? Yeah, we did. And immediately dropped down dead. Three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing this. They had already packed out the body of Ananias. It says, did you sell the land for such and such? Yes, we did. And how much did you give? We gave it all. What happened? She dropped down immediately dead before his feet. And this, this is what happened. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Later on, we find out about the people in Jerusalem and surrounding areas. The unsaved, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. Amazing. Boy, think about how the giving would be in this church if that happened. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) Or maybe it wouldn't be. I don't know. Paul dealt with the same issue with the Corinthian church. He said, look, guys, because of what you're doing, you are deliberately in sin, and you're actually uh, undermining the very sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ when you come to your love feast and the communion service. He said, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you sleep. And he meant that God struck them down and took them home prematurely. Wow. Why? That's a scary thing. We're not talking about the unpardonable sin here. The Christian sin's been dealt with, but how God deals with sin when we continue on in out-and-out known rebellion. Look with me, and I want you to do this. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. So important you see this. 1 John chapter 5. Don't give up your Bibles just because we have it on the back here. I guess we don't have it back there. All right. 1 John 5. The Apostle John what he says in verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death. Boy, there's a lot of sin not leading to death. Aren't you glad for that? I am. Or you'd be getting a pastor every week, a new one. Or maybe you wouldn't get any pastor at all. But what does he say here? He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God... He shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. What's he saying? You can't pray for the person that God's going to strike dead because they won't quit sinning. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. You know, one wonders how many Christians have been killed by God and taken home early simply because they would not deal with sin in their life. That's scary. It ought to be. It's in the Scriptures. It ought to be. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We should each fear committing this sin unto death, not even knowing which sin it is. But obviously it's a sin that we're not being willing to deal with. Number six. Boy, please don't miss this. Number six. It fits right in with the last one. The terror of falling into the hand, into God's hands. The terror of falling into God's hands. I want you to turn to Hebrews, and it's important you do. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. First, I want to make a comment to you. I know a number of you out there have Bibles that have notes in them. 
and you read those notes, and some of those notes are going to say, this section deals with unbelievers in the church. I'm going to go on record, and I'll stand before God for this, of telling you it does not, it was not written for unbelievers in the church. It was written to you and me, believers. And I'll tell you why I'm concerned, because if you read this and apply it to the unsaved person, you could find yourself in deep water with God. Now I'm going to explain why it's not written to unbelievers in the church, but rather to believers. First of all, the book of Hebrews was written to believers, not unbelievers. Written to believers. But let's go on, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Let me state what I think he's saying there. You can't go back and get saved a second time. A lot of churches teach that. If you could, then all the sinning when you were a Christian that you did could be completely eradicated. There would be no consequence of it. But you cannot go back and get saved a second time. And so he says, what's the goal? Go on with the Lord. Be obedient. But let's continue on. Verse 27. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now notice his illustration. Do you recall me saying that he took them to Sinai and he sprinkled the blood and entered into a covenant with them? And he did the same with you and me. 1 Peter 1. Anyone, so he's going to use the Old Testament saints or the Old Testament people that were in that wilderness. And by the way, I'm not willing to say that all of them, that first generation perished and went to hell. If that's the case, Moses ended up there and Aaron and Miriam as well. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, so they're under the condition, the covenant, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Remember about working out your salvation because of the fear of the precious blood? Verse 29, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Now we'll get this, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. What's that say to you? That tells me these are believers, not unsaved people in the Hebrews church there, and has insulted the spirit of grace. And verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge who? Who will he judge? His people. His people. I go on record telling you, this is talking about you and me, the believer. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I think we've proved that enough by talking about the sin unto death and so forth. And so I say to you, our fear of committing the sin unto death and then the terror of falling into the hands of the living God. I have used this illustration before, but it's so appropriate. Please bear with me as I share it again. It's about Peter Deinecke. Peter Deinecke came from the Slavic countries, one of those Slavic countries. Back in probably the 60s when they were under communist rule, and so the church had to pretty well be underground. He was invited to come over here to St. Paul, Minneapolis, and there he held, held a week of meetings, which were revival and evangelistic meetings. And it happened to be that my homiletics or preaching instructor, Mike Jones, Milton Jones, I mentioned before, he's been here. He's now home with the Lord. 
uh, he was there. He was a seminary student at that time. And uh, anyway, there were that church is a fairly good-sized church, and it had severe problem. Two men, powerful men, well uh, wealthy men, they were controlling the church, and they were also involved with destroying the church. And it was holding up the revival, it's holding up people getting saved and so forth. Peter learned about this, and he said, listen, we need. do you want to do something about this? The leader said, yeah, we want to do something about that. He said, all right, then we're going to meet for a prayer meeting. The leaders meet for a prayer meeting. So a particular night, I think it was Tuesday night, don't remember for sure, they met, and here was Mike Jones. As soon as Peter saw him, he said, what are you doing here? Because he's just a young guy, you know, a college or seminary student. He said, well, I'm going to be a pastor, and I need to learn how to deal with these things. He said, fine, you can be here, but you keep your mouth shut. So he said, you know what the problem is? We're going to pray about it. So they started praying. And you know how these prayer meetings go? Maybe you don't. Pray for the church, you know. Pray for the sick and afflicted. Pray for people to get healed. For people to get right with God. Pray for, uh, you know, uh, uh, God to work in the revival. It's really going on and on, you know, and so forth. Well, so let's take a break. Let's get some coffee going here. And after they said, let's go back and pray. Now, you remember why you guys, you remember why you're here to pray. And so finally they're praying. It's about two in the morning. That's, okay, that's it. Don't need to pray anymore. Really? No. Every one of the men there had finally prayed the same way. Lord, get this man right or take him out of here. Get this man right or take him out of here. Two in the morning. Snow on the ground, cold. Snowing at the very time that my prof was telling me about this. And uh, he looks out the window and here's a car with the engine running. And they're about to go outside. Wait, wait, he said, wait a minute, that could be a hit. So where I come from in Philadelphia, that's at 2 in the morning, a motor run out, that could be it. He's listen, get out of the way. He goes out there, Peter does, and he slams his hands on the top of the car and says, who are you? The guy said, told him who he was. He was one of the guys. What are you doing here? I came to get right with God. So then you step out of the car, kneel down in the snow right here, and you confess your sin before God and get right. And that's what he did. That morning or the next morning, the wife of the other man who was on a trip, in a, a rail trip, a train trip in Iowa, got the news that he had died of a massive heart attack. Peter said, that's how we deal with sin in the church in these countries. That's what God expects. That's what you're looking at here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you know what? I want you to pray that God will work that deep in my heart. It's so easy to be accustomed to sin, routine, things that dishonor Him. Boy, do we need to pray that for one another. The leadership of this church for you and you for the leadership. We need that. That we might be a holy church. And believe me, where this nation is going, only the church can make a difference. And it won't save it. But God will use us as the salt and light that we're to be. Let me conclude with two texts here. Two scriptural encouragements. And then we'll be through. Isaiah 66, 2b. Isaiah 66, 2b. But to this one I will look. Don't you want God to look to you? I want God to look to me. I, the saved sinner, but to this one I will look. To him who is humble 
and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And trembles at my word. And secondly, Acts 9.31. Acts 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, and listen to this, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good? Going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. May God do that in this church, in your and my life. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We're now through for this morning. Not even going to have a closing song. But, O Holy Spirit of God, you dwell in every one of us who's redeemed. There probably are people who are not in your family. They've not been born again. Maybe there's no fear of God before their eyes. And yet soon that dread will come over the whole world. But Heavenly Father, I pray that you would cause us to work out this salvation, this precious, costly salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it is God who is at work in us, causing us to will and to work for your good pleasure. In your name we pray. Amen.